listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. This week on Soil Talk, we're going to start a conversation about pH. And for the sake of keeping things as simple as we can on this topic, we're going to split it into two parts. And this week, we're going to talk specifically about high pHs. So, when first and foremost, he had so much fun last time that he's back with us again, the Godfather himself, back for a second time, Neil. Thanks for joining us again and being brave enough to to do so. So glad to be back, at least at this point, with you, Keith. Do no, one more, you'll never be glad to be back again. Notice he said glad to be back with me, Keith, not you, Tim. <laughs> I did so, notice yeah, that. That was not a Freudian slip. So, so let's start with the importance of pH in the grand scheme of things. pH is sometimes a little bit misunderstood in my opinion because it's not a nutrient. The plant doesn't uptake a pH component into it that feeds it in some way or provides something for an enzyme that makes the process work better. pH instead impacts so many, if not almost all of the other nutrients in a positive or negative way, depending on its balance in the plant. So let's start with there. How is pH important to the overall aspect of what we're doing in in agriculture? Of course, it's the acidity of the soil. So you, you look at the environment that the plant has to grow in, the environment that all the other uh, life forms in the soil have to uh, thrive in, and the environment that the nutrients have to be available to the plant in. And, and it's all kind of pH driven, that acidity of the soil. We, we look at pH and of course, uh, seven is neutral. As you go below seven, it's acidic. It's a logarithmic scale, which a lot of people don't quite understand that. It's not like when you move from six to five, it's just a little more acidic. It's 10 times more acidic. When you move from an eight to a nine, it's not a little more basic. It's 10 times more basic. Or when you start at neutral, pH of seven, a nine is a hundred times more basic or caustic. A five is a 100 times more acidic. So the, the scale can be kind of uh, misleading that it looks like small numbers, but they're big changes in that environment. And I think the part of that that uh, a lot of times we get a little bit confused in is the the positive or the negative ions in the soil that tie up some of the nutrients we're spending good money on every year to try and grow a crop are really impacted by pHs that are out of sync. So uh, there are some things we can do on the low side that we can't do on the high side. And I think that's the interesting part of the high side of this is uh, there are different management philosophies and different approaches we need to take, but the impactfulness is just as great whether you're on the low side or the high side as far as restricting easily available nutrients that are important to the plant. And, And here again, no matter how good the fertility program, if your pHs are out of whack, you're not getting near as much of the benefit of that well-thought-out, well-planned, well-orchestrated fertility plan as you could. As we talk about that a little bit, let's kind of talk about uh, what pH ranges we like as agronomists for the crops that we grow, you know, in CVA's territory. And I'll start. For me, I like things a little acidic. I, I like a pH to be ideally somewhere in that 6.2 to 6.7, 6.8 range for corn and soybeans. Uh, if we're going to wheat, uh, maybe the a slightly lower end of that scale, but still right in that same scale. And then for alfalfa, a little higher, maybe 6.8 to 7. 
7.2 is what I like personally as agronomist, but you know, you ask 10 different agronomists a question, you'll get 10 different answers. So Keith, what's your answer? I, in, in the case of pH here, I don't think there's really a, a whole lot of room for discussion because it goes back to what the primary nutrients that are going to be taken up by that crop are and the, and the balance of those things. And, and again, what you said, that 6-3 that is kind of the magical number for corn. Beans are, are, are right in that same avenue, and we like to be a little bit higher for alfalfa. So to me, uh, in, in this case, there's, there shouldn't be a whole lot of of difference in opinion from agronomist to agronomist on pH levels, Neil? I would say that generally is the case, although I think we'll find a lot of mindsets out there that says corn is more forgiving in high, in lower and higher pHs than soybeans, definitely than than alfalfa, which I think everybody's in agreement on. But uh, I would think that we, we're we probably going to see a little bit more forgiveness on lower and higher pHs with some of our corn varieties than we can most of our soybean varieties. And, and, and ironically, that's what we'll see growers migrate to if they don't address their pH issues or feel like it's something they can address. We'll see them migrating to more corn on corn acres versus a 50-50 rotation simply because of that scenario. So, Tim, as we've gone along through this, as we've talked about each one of these nutrients, we've spent a little bit of time talking about the or about the lab test that goes along with this. When it comes to the lab test for pH, does this one have as much variation from lab to lab in the method that's used to take pH as some of the other tests like a Bray to a Olsen or things like that? Not really. So for the most part, most of the laboratories are using a one-to-one mix of distilled deionized water and soil. There is a salt-based test where it's more of a salt uh, P, they call it a salt pH, where it takes maybe a little more of the variation out of it. Some of the land-grant universities recommend that, but almost all of the commercial laboratories have gone to just the straight one-to-one distilled uh, water ver- and soil ratio, and then they just measure it with a pH meter. There's very little variation there, and it's a very accurate test. The one other thing I'll throw on there is, is on the soil test, there's the pH measurement, and there's the buffer pH measurement. The, the soil pH, that one-to-one ratio of soil and distilled deionized water, that's the pH of your soil, the active hydrogen in your soil. The buffer pH is only used if the laboratory makes the decision that this is a low pH soil and we're going to want to lime it. And then the buffer pH is used as an indication of how much lime it's going to need to correct the acidity. And sometimes guys will get confused and look at the, the buffer pH first, which they should never do. Always look at soil pH first, but it's a good common measurement used by all the labs. And understand that if you've got a high pH, you're not going to see a buffer. Correct. So in this particular scenario, talking about high pHs, you should not see a buffer number on that soil uh, report, which is the first indication that you're dealing with a higher pH. It's going to be handled in one of two ways. Either that column is going to be completely blank or there'll be a, a static number in there that won't trigger anything like a seven put into that column. Correct. And that's just mainly for precision ag software. So it doesn't trigger a uh, lime recommendation. Mm-hmm. So if you do happen to see uh, you're, you've got a fairly high pH soil and all the buffers are seven or seven one, well, that's just a number that was thrown in there to make sure we didn't trigger a lime recommendation. So let's start down the path of talking about what happens when pH is high. And since we focus so much time here on the nutrients, let's start there as the nutrient component of what happens with when pH is high. So 
when pH is high, it has what effect on nitrogen? For the most part on nitrogen, I wouldn't expect a lot of effect. It might slow down a little bit of your uh, uh, microbial activity, but I wouldn't expect a drastic decrease. The, probably the only interaction I think about a lot when it comes to pH and nitrogen is if you're surface applying UAN or urea, the urease enzyme is generally a lot more active in high pH soils and you can have worse issues for ammonia volatilization. So that's one thing to keep in mind if you've got uh, a lot of high pH soil out there or even an area with a lot of high pH soil and you're uh, surface applying a lot of uh, nitrogen as either urea or UAN, you should think about some type of a uh, enzyme inhibitor to inhibit that urease enzyme because in high pH soils, it is quite a bit more active. And so we'll talk about your uh, negative ion nutrients, especially phosphorus. That's where we start to see some dramatic tie-up. It's one of the one of the things we spend a lot of money on, usually every year, uh, to make sure we have enough phosphorus. Uh, here again, our management of phosphorus, the higher the pH, the more critical that the management is of that product because otherwise we're, we're tying a lot of that up and restricting its availability short term to the plant. And so we'll talk about uh, placing it more uh, in a more concentrated area, such as a you know, two by two or, or strip tilling or something more concentrated closer to the root mass so that the plant has a chance of finding that and finding more availability of that before it gets tied up in those soils that are high pH soils that tie up those negative ions, which where you spend your money on, uh, you know, you really would like to get some of that back a little quicker. So uh, it can really be detrimental. And, and we may talk about that a little bit on your P1 and P2 Bray. If we were looking at that from a soil test level, a uh, two to one ratio is typically what we'd see is average between a P1, which we would consider somewhat readily available to the plant. And that's, that's a, that is another discussion, but your P2 should be somewhere in that ballpark of double that to be in a normal, healthy soil environment, we would consider. When you get into high pH soils, we may see a dramatically different number on, on our P2 bray, which may be two to five times higher, meaning that that's, that phosphorus is a little tight, more tightly held. And even though there's phosphorus there, the, the plant's ability to extract that from the soil becomes much more limited and much more unreliable as a source of phosphorus for that plant for the year. And Keith is probably thinking right now, my gosh, Neil, don't let Tim go down that tangent. <laughs> Again. But when we do talk about phosphorus in, in the lab test, uh, a lot of times those high pH soils will tend to neutralize that extraction solution. So you should also look at with Midwest Laboratories, you should look for an Olson number as well. That may be the appropriate number to look at for uh, the soil test. But you're exactly right, Neil, when you've got that big spread between the P1 and P2, a lot of times it's telling you there's a lot of phosphorus there that's kind of tied up. And that's one of your reasons that uh, there's not much showing in that P1 test, and you need to think about managing around it. What do you tell a grower, Keith, when you start dealing with a high pH soil and how they should manage their phosphorus differently? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to get the context of what got you there. You know, the blanket applications, the manure applications, the things like that that may have gotten us to that point, because there, there comes a time, you know, Neil, you said two to one. I don't tend to get a whole, I don't get very concerned until I see about a four to one there on, on that P1 to P2 or, or recalibrated P1 from that Olson test to, to my P2 levels. When I start seeing seven or, or 10X, it's time to completely change the philosophy of our applications that are going into that. I, even though by, from a GIS standpoint, from my world, 
ICP level of four part per million, I go into build mode. Well, that mentality has been proven wrong when the P2 levels are out of whack. So as we've gotten smarter, as we've learned through the years, we start writing logic into these equations that looks and says, okay, if that spread is more than five or seven to one on that thing, I want to kick out the build component of this thing and just strictly go to a crop removal program. And I want to go to a crop removal program and use a product that's designed to keep my phosphorus available. You know, whether that's a treatment of the phosphorus, whether that's a, a constructed granular that has sulfur in there to help keep pH up, those different components all play a role in deciding what to do there. I think we've, we've had really good luck with MES in these high pH soils. I know we have. I think that's partially because of the sulfur uh, impregnated in the prill. The other thing I'll say that uh, one of the simpler things that we have continued to preach and, and move forward on is a yearly application rather than a two-year application where you give that phosphorus much more opportunity to be tied up before that second-year crop that can really hurt you on those high pH soils. So some of it's simple. Some of it's not as simple. Uh, we're down to genetics uh, for the most part, uh, between corn and soybean hybrids and varieties that had maybe have more tolerance to high pH. Uh, but we can also talk about uh, if we look at amendments or things to do on the high side, there's really not a lot of things we can do. We know that nitrogen and sulfur with negative ions can lower, can have an effect on lowering pH, but Normally, we're not going to apply those in great enough quantities to really drive that pH down enough to be significant. But there again, uh, there's a reason why corn on corn does help too. The amount of negative ions we're throwing out there in our nutrients helps buffer a little bit of that. They aren't tied up quite as quickly in those high pH soils. And so corn on corn seems to be more relevant in that scenario. There are no easy buttons on high pH other than good management, good placement, uh, and and better and good selection of, of your hybrids. So before we run down that rabbit hole of, of lowering that pH, let, let's go back to something you talked about there. And that is managing, uh, you know, some of the management things. And I think we all probably tend to think about soybeans in particular when we talk about high pH because of several factors. And one of them that, that probably is is called incorrectly is that iron chlorosis or the pH induced iron chlorosis that we get on there. So how do we go about selecting ways to get, what, what can we do about that, Tim? Well, number one, I would start with grid sampling. And I, I know you, you love hearing me say that one, Keith, but you need to know what you got out there. And when you do a composite sample in a, a soil with a lot of variation in it, you can easily think you're dealing with an acid, but you, you're dealing with an acid and some base soils as well. So one of the first things I'd want to do is grid sample and assess what you've really got out there. And then for me, when I'm dealing with IDC, I really think hard in, in soybeans, I think really hard about variety selection and a, get a variety that can tolerate some high pH and can can tolerate a little bit of that IDC symptomology. And, and Neil, you mentioned it earlier that a little bit that different plants are different in their ability to exude acids to pull some of those nutrients out. And I think those soybeans that have been bred in those high pH environments that are able to deal with that, they just exude that uh, a different, a little bit different uh, acid to extract a little bit more iron out of that soil than the soybeans that can't. I think we can tie that in with herbicides also. And that's not a conversation we typically always make sure we include, but any of our soil applied herbicides 
or herbicides that are needing to be pulled down through the plant, through the root system and back up can be impacted by either high or low pH soils and their effectiveness. And, and a lot of times we'll see guys with some disappointment on those types of soils. Uh, and they really don't affect your uh, contact herbicides, but they definitely can have an impact on your soil applied or translocating products that move down through the root system back up because if your nutrients are limited the mobility of nutrients up through the plant if they're limited to some extent so are your herbicides ability to be active and part of that is they tie together although we don't always correlate the two hand in hand i think a lot of times we fail to remember that on a lot of those soil applied herbicides there are ph recommendations for rates that are included in those and and unfortunately for our areas across the CVA footprint here, there's a lot of times where we have that variation within the fields that, that land on the two different rates. So you can, you can be a grower who's used to growing on the acids all the time because that's the way all your fields are. And you pick up this new field and it also in a composite sample will show to be an acid soil. But you go grid sample it and it'll have some high pH areas in it. And just like you guys were talking about, they make those labels for a reason. It's not just that the herbicide may not be as effective. It'll damage the crop or it may carry over and damage next year's crop. So you need to pay attention to those labels and you need to know what your pHs are across your entire field, not just one area. To me, in my world of the precision ag side of things, high pH is a really good opportunity to employ different variable rate strategies out there in the field to deal with it. You know, one of the things that, that certainly doesn't have a lot of support, hasn't really taken the industry by storm yet, but I don't think is, is too far away is varying those herbicide rates by pH, especially as, as direct injection systems become more and more common out there and, and get to be more of the norm on these systems going forward with the different herbicides that we have to deal with throughout the years. It, it's quite possible that we'll be writing variable rate herbicide programs to get the right rate on those different pH ranges. But the one that really is here today that is, is not being utilized anywhere near enough is the multi-hybrid, multi-variety planter capabilities that we have out there. The ability to set up a planter with two hybrids, two varieties, and switch on the go because the yield advantages of getting that iron deficient chlorose or that IDC bean variety in the right place might make the difference of, at times it can be significantly in the teens or higher on getting that right bean variety placed in there. And, and the corn can be the same. If you find a corn hybrid that really responds and, and, and doesn't, or maybe not responds, but doesn't fall off the same way on those high pHs, there's a lot to be gained there. And, and vice versa, taking those hybrids and putting them on the best areas of your field can really hurt a guy because they're not going to be the racehorse hybrids typically. They're not going to be the ones that have the legs to run out to 300 plus bushel out there and give us our best performance. So that's where, especially as I see pHs varying a lot across the grower's operation, when I look at their zone or their grid samples, this is where that conversation really needs to ramp up around the multi-hybrid, multi-variety planner and, and how big the ROI can be with that technology. I know we're challenged because addressing and fixing pH issues is a long-term long process. And then tight economies and needing to make returns. And if you're cash renting or have short-term options, it becomes that much more challenging. So any solutions we can find that you can take advantage of short-term, such as hybrids and varying those or placement, 
or even looking at your herbicide program and deciding which ones may be less impactful on those types of soils, all those need to be considered. And that makes that makes this process seem a little more difficult to make eat quick decisions and live with. But here again, uh, pH issues are not going to go away. They're always going to be limiting on those types of soils. And so uh, fixing them is, a, I would say, a lot of times long-term and maybe impossible on our high pHs. So you have to look at your options and what makes sense, ignoring it, will not get you the yield results you're looking for. When we talk about placement, I think a lot about some of the things you mentioned earlier, Neil, that, you know, if we can do some strip till and a lot of times, you know, if a guy's got a lot of high pH soil, I'll mention a strip till bar. You know, if we could get this stuff banded in a small area so it's not in contact with as much soil, that makes a lot of sense. I'm also a believer in dual placement. If you can get some nitrogen with that phosphorus, which a lot of our phosphorus products already have some nitrogen with them, but maybe adding a little bit more. So when it converts to nitrate and releases all that hydrogen in the conversion, we're going to add some acidity in that area let's you know if we can make that area concentrated with a lot of phosphorus in it and add some acidity there through nitrogen maybe ams something like that um, we can keep that phosphorus we do put there available longer it also encourages root growth in that area and if you get a, a little more roots in that area they've got more opportunity to pick up pick up that phosphorus and i would say one more opportunity might be looking at another split application it may cost you six or seven dollars an acre that's two bushel but the opportunity to have available nutrients during the growing season may overwhelm that fivefold. So, right. you know, that it's another opportunity we need to explore for those guys that, uh, that have limitations based on especially high pH. So I think now's a good time before we, we get into the backside of this conversation to pause and, and have a farm story here. And t- t- Tim, I think since Neil gave us the one last time around. I think it's your turn this week to, to share something. So I, I hear tell that there there's a pretty uh, robust story coming here. So lay it on us. So yeah, farmers are always uh, tough on equipment. Most of the time it's our own, but occasionally it's somebody else's. So this was probably, gosh, 20 years ago or so. I was out helping with harvest and my, my dad and my uncle farmed together and shared equipment. We were moving from my uncle's place back to my dad's and everybody grabbed a piece of equipment. You know, one guy had the combine, one guy had a truck. I had a tractor and grain cart. The two operations were about uh, 12 miles apart. Uh, somebody else had the, uh, and this somebody else will will remain nameless had the uh, auger behind a pickup and of course you know that vehicle can go quite a bit faster than the rest of us so it got home first but we get headed back uh, home and we all kind of headed different directions because of the you know the bridges and the pieces of equipment we had but just as we were getting on onto my dad's operation uh, about a mile away uh, we all kind of went by this same car that was laying kind of off to the side of the highway and had a long trail of oil uh, starting up at some round object that was kind of uphill from it a ways, maybe maybe 50 yards or so. It was a little Geo Metro, kind of a smaller car. And of course, we're, we're kind of car guys and we believe in horsepower and muscle cars and those kind of things. We like our pickups. And a Geo Metro definitely is not our type of car. So we get back to the shop and we're all jumping out of the tractor or whatever we're in and, and we're kind of sitting around BSing before we get things set up with the grain and the, the dryer and the augers and get the harvest going again here at this other place. 
And we started making some jokes about, hey, did you see that geo laying in the middle of the highway with that trail of oil leading back to whatever that thing was in the highway? And and everybody's kind of laughing about geo metros. And, well, what was that thing? And, oh, it was the squirrel cage. Didn't you see the squirrels running around? The squirrel cage fell out of that geo, and that's what dropped all the oil out of there. And we're har, har, har about who drives a geo metro around, you know, western Iowa during harvest. So anyway, we get done making our jokes and kind of get settled in and go to set things up. And we're setting the auger up. And the auger's got a little place with a with a hydraulic swing uh, auger that feeds the main auger so we can swing it back and forth under the trucks. And there's a hydraulic motor that runs that swing auger. And we go to grab that hydraulic motor, and it's not there. And we check the back to pick up, and it's not the back to pick up either. And we're going, where's that hydraulic motor? And we're saying to ourselves... You know, maybe that geo being broke down the middle of the highway is not going to be quite so funny after all. So we run back there and lo and behold, there's our hydraulic motor at the start of that long trail of oil that leads to that geo metro. Get back to the shop and my dad was working somewhere else and say, hey, it looks like the hydraulic motor fell off the auger and, and gutted this geo metro on the highway. So dad calls the insurance agent up and says, theoretically speaking, if we were to have a hydraulic motor fall off one of our augers and the car comes over the top of the hill and hits it, are we liable? And the insurance agent says, yeah, you're liable. Are we covered for that with our liability insurance? Yeah, you're covered for that. Hey, this isn't theoretical anymore. <laughs> so that's the story about the gutting the Geo Metro in the middle of the highway. On the bright side, it was a Geo Metro, so it might not even met the deductible. Not a huge loss, <laughs> but for those of you wondering, they don't actually have squirrel cages in them. And something laying in the middle of the highway when you're missing your hydraulic motor is not a good sign. Lesson learned. Geos can be stopped by practically everything. Yeah, if you're wondering which one's tougher, a Geo Metro or a, a solid steel hydraulic motor it's not the not a contest yeah the the metro loses okay okay on that note getting back to the topic of ph what happens out in our fields that can raise ph what what is happening i mean for the most part high ph is naturally occurring it goes back to the alluvial tills and the way that the soil parent material came together. But are there things that happen in a year in and year out basis on our farms that can raise pH on our fields? Because I can really only think of one that has a significant layer level on that pH. Well, generally, it's our liming. You know, if you're out there liming, and of course, again, it goes back to, you know, here's kind of why we really do encourage grid sampling. You're out there liming this field and you say, well, you know, the field average is 5.5 pH. I'm going to uh, throw down, you know, two and a half, three ton ag lime. And we're going to bring it up and everything's going to be good. When you're dealing with composite samples, there's a good chance you're missing something out there. You could easily have, yes, the field average is a 5.5, but there's areas that are 7.2 and 7.5 and 8.1. And you're throwing lime on those and you're actually just making them worse. The other scenario that uh, a lot of times we don't think about, but if you're doing any water testing, would be coming out of our irrigation wells. And in Nebraska, that can vary from extremely high pH water to extremely low pH water. So there'll be times when we'll find enough calcium in our irrigation water to bring that pH up naturally. Unfortunately, for those guys with uh, low pH, it's usually not enough, uh, or there's not enough calcium in those areas. And unfortunately, we find it sometimes on those soils that are already high pH with a lot of calcareous uh, limestone particle in it that have lime in the water, or calcium in 
in the water that they don't want that can also make it even that much worse. But that would in in for for us in Nebraska yeah. that would probably be the major thing. Understanding what your well water says too, as yeah. far as nutrients. In yeah, it. look for that. Uh, Carbonates and bicarbonates in your well water. That's what's actually you know causing that high pH. The calcium is as well, but it's yep. the calcium carbonate, the bicarbonates. Right, and we see that all the time with irrigated ground where the dryland corners have a lime need, and the irrigated part of the field is is getting to be high or very high after 50 years of, of irrigation water going on it. The other one I was thinking about though is the other unintended you know you you call irrigation an unintended liming out there the other unintended liming probably comes a little bit more from your guys's geography and i know we see it some in southern nebraska and that is the dust trail off of the limestone roads yeah that's a good point uh where we use uh, calcium carbonate uh limestone as our, our uh, gravel yeah, and you can tell tell two different ways, how close it is to the road, and you can also tell the difference in how much that road is traveled. I've looked at fields and said, well, there's limestone roads on both sides of this field, but one side seems to have a lot of impact and the other side doesn't. Well, then I'm out in that field and I watch 25 cars go by one gravel road and one car sneak by wondering what the heck I'm doing out there on the other one. So, yes, that makes a difference. And I would say that normally the north side of your road might have more dust uh, from calcium or from limestone rock settling on it than your than the will on the south side because we have prevailing south winds more like more of the time than we do north. So yep. in the yeah. summer when things aren't yeah. frozen solid yep. and covered with yes. snow anyway. Yep. yep. So then to kind of get to the the brass tacks of the high pH, what can we do to lower pH? What what is the management practices that we can take to do something about it and move it down? There's there's management that we can do to work around it, but what can we do to quote unquote fix it? Well, elemental sulfur with or ammonium sulfate will without a doubt fix it and drive the pH down. But it gets to be a tremendous amount of elemental sulfur, especially as Neil alluded to earlier. You know, we've got this free calcium carbonate out there in some of these high pH soils. Well, you go throw down elemental sulfur to try to lower the pH in a soil that also has a bunch of free calcium carbonate in it. That calcium carbonate is going to dissolve and react with the sulfur and neutralize it before it can bring down the soil's pH. So it's a big challenge. It can be done, but generally not cost effective. I normally try to encourage people to work around it with placement, with dual placement of both nitrogen and phosphorus, placement of your micronutrients. Instead of soil applying micronutrients, foliar feed them. Management and thinking things through is generally the first thing I point people to. I think that, you know, here again, uh, some people might have the misconception that it's hundreds of pounds of sulfur that can make a difference. It's probably tons. tons. And that becomes the challenge. You know, it's it's just an economic scenario that doesn't make sense uh, to do. Uh, you know, the only other really option that I, without being humorous in this respect, if it's one you can't manage, you sell that farm or find one that doesn't have the high pH issues. That's probably the probably the, the most economical way to lower your pH. Yep. Find somebody you don't like and offer to sell it to them. And on that note, I think we'll wrap up our discussion this week on high pHs. So, Neil, again, thank you for joining us this week on this conversation. And for those of you that are listening, next time around, we're going to flip the table on this one and we're going to talk about low pHs and those impacts and the, and the actions that we can take to deal with them. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. 
If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our precision-focused blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf. Thank you.